0: Welcome to the Circular Economy Show podcast from the Ella MacArthur Foundation. In this series, we're looking at regenerative solutions to many of today's biggest issues, from biodiversity loss to climate change. We're sharing conversations from Summit 22, and in this episode, we're looking at regenerative design. Tim Brown, chair and co-CEO of IDEO, spoke to Joanne Shukier, director of design and innovation at the RSA, Michael Paulin, architect and author of Biomimicry and Architecture and co-author of Flourish, Design Paradigms for our Planetary Emergency. And David Wilkinson, Vice President of Agriculture and Dairy at PepsiCo Europe. Let's hand over to Tim, who led the session.
1: It's a pretty new notion. Um, We haven't been talking about regenerative for very long. It can be quite abstract. So, we'll, 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 start, we'll start with some of the basics and, uh, uh, Michael, perhaps you could kick us off. with how, how do you define regenerative design? Where do we start?
2: Well, first of all, I just want to acknowledge the people who have been working on it for quite a long period of time. The Regeneratist Group and Daniel Vahl and, of course, people like uh, Janine Benius. Um, so, for me, regenerative design is a lot more than just sustainability with all the knob turn, knobs turned up. Um, and in my, the, the book that I recently wrote with Sarah Ichioka, we, we argue that it's going to require five really fundamental shifts. Uh, rethinking our ideas of agency, rethinking our relationship with the living world, uh, rethinking our attitude towards time, rethinking human nature, and developing a, a whole new purpose for the economy.
1: And so if this is what we're focused on, Joanna, talk a little bit about... Um what are the fundamental principles? How do we, how do we approach uh, the idea of regenerative design that's different, perhaps, from how we thought about sustainable design in the past or uh, other approaches to design?
3: Thank you, Tim. And just to say, it's really exciting and inspiring to be here. Um, so um, at the RSA, for the last three years, we've been leading research on what it means to to actually design in a regenerative way. Um, That research was led by my colleague, Josie Warden, but working very closely with um, people across the RSA community, including Kate Rayworth, Daniel Christian-Vall, and others. And um, what we got to and what we published recently um, in May, the Design for Life mission, the new RSA mission, um, which um, focuses on our potential at the RSA to unlock social opportunity for social innovation, that can help us transition towards a future that is more resilient, rebalanced, and regenerative. And in that mission, we capture some of the insights from our research around these sort of principles that you described, Tim. Um, We refer to them as uh, perspectives rather than principles, and there's a number of reasons for that. Firstly, because we believe that principles can be a bit too binary. It can feel like a checklist, that Mm. you have to do all these things, and if you do them, you're getting it right. Um, Whereas, actually, our understanding of regenerative design is very nascent. It's emergent and we're continuously learning and developing ways of practicing in more regenerative ways. So perspectives leave more space for emergence and adaptability. Um, So we can learn and these can change over time. So we're not being sort of very um, explicit about these being the right ones. This is what we know for now and these might change in the future. And the second reason is because perspectives recognize that we need different worldviews. We need to bring very different perspectives to the work that we have and that fundamentally it's about the work that we do on the inside as individuals as designers engineers change makers before we start to act on the outside the services that we're designing the products the systems the policies so the six perspectives that we suggest are firstly systemic so understanding the system recognizing that our systems are dependent and interconnected and fundamentally that they're nested in the same way that our ecological systems are Um, And Kate Raworth and the doughnut model represents that really well. So at the heart, we have our economic system. And our economic system should be delivering value to our social and environmental system. There's no other value that is meaningful. Wealth, for the sake of wealth, wealth that is not about creating human health and planetary health is not valuable. So making sure that our economy is working for society and then making sure that social initiatives and social interventions are there to support environmental outcomes. Because here as humans, as a society, we're here to care for the planet, for the wider ecologies. So that's the first principle. The second is adaptive. So learning from nature, there can never be a finite solution that is gonna be the right idea or intervention for the long-term that we need to learn from nature and the adaptive cycle of nature. And for some of you who might be familiar with that sort of infinity model, Every intervention that we design goes through growth, through maturity, potentially collapse or death, but where it dies, it leaves, it creates compost for the next idea to come. The third is around collective wisdom, and that's the wisdom of the diverse voices, and particularly those who are closest to the challenges or the kind of futures that we're seeking to create, but also looking at non-human wisdom, biomimicry, and what we can learn from nature. The fourth is fourth, is imagination. Um, We are the only human, the the only animal on this planet with with an innate capacity to imagine. And we can't solve today's problems with the same kind of thinking that created them, as Albert Einstein put it. So how how are we tapping into our innate capacity to imagine, to create a radical future, beyond the current paradigms. Fifth is long-term thinking. So moving away from the myopic views of our funding cycles, our policy cycles, profit and loss analysis, and really thinking about our stewardship for the long-term future. How are we acting today? What are we doing today that is leaving the planet in a better place for the generations to come, beyond our lifetime, beyond our jobs, our roles, how we exist within the organizations we're leading and working from. And finally, global, which is actually a term that Daniel Christian Vaal uses a lot, and it's the combination of global and local. Um, And it's demystifying and fundamentally challenging this notion that there's a one-size-fits-all solution, that we just need to achieve sort of global scale of any sort of idea, that a good idea is scalable. And starting from place, from the context of that place, the strengths, the skills of the place the soil the climate of the place and then working on interventions that work for that place and that come from the people and the resources of that place and then learning can be spread and that's how scale happens so learning can be spread to other um, bioregions other places who may be inspired to try things in different ways but yeah change change starts one place at a time one bioregion At a time. So these are the kind of sort of perspectives we're now focusing on because we believe that every person, every every one of us is an agent of change. So if we all approach um, our future with these kind of perspectives front of mind, it can be absolutely transformational.
1: That's an incredibly rich set of perspectives, and with all the work that you do with students uh, in in terms of learning, hopefully we'll be having whole new generations of of design students coming through who are naturally thinking this way. David, uh, with your work at, at, at PepsiCo, you're, you're approaching the kind of the practical challenges of of, of being regenerative. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, talk a little bit about what the what the constraints are and what your goals are as a uh, as a company when it comes to uh, uh, shifting to a more regenerative approach.
4: Okay. So, my job I work in our procurement team and I buy all of our agricultural commodities. So many people think Pepsi is just a fizzy drink no we we buy a lot of potatoes for Walkers and Lay's and oats for Quaker so I buy all of the the agricultural um, materials. And unfortunately enough, me and my team, we work with something like 2,300 farmers directly. So when we start to talk about, well, we've been on a long journey. We've been through sustainability journey and how we, 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 we grow our crops in a sustainable way. We've now started to turn our mind to how do we grow our crops in a regenerative way. And they really stem from our corporate Objectives or targets to try to introduce regenerative practices across 7 million acres, uh, and 2 million of those sitting in Europe in my area. So we're really working with our farmers, and to the point made around very local, we look for local solutions. And it is difficult, but we also make sure that we define very tangible Interventions. A lot of this is already well known. Farmers know a lot of the solutions. People talk about cover crops, um, keeping bare soil covered over the winter, crop rotations, but creating the right incentive model and systems for them to be able to implement that is crucial, and then also making sure that you don't get, I think, you know, to one of the constraints is not to think too small about something. So people might say to me, you know, I love potatoes. So they'll say to you, you can't grow potatoes regeneratively, they run a, you know, they, they move a lot of soil, you have to p- apply lots of chemicals, and all of this is true, but then we have to sort of really push our mind to think more broadly than just the March planting, the September harvesting of that crop. So. What happened to that field before? Can we put in a a winter crop before it to sort of ensure that the soil is a better texture so we don't have to do so much ploughing? And and this linking together all of the actions and bringing the farmers together to make these local solutions applicable, for me, is, is crucial, and that's where I think we've had some success, and it's really come from working at this farm level with a number of farmers. So, so it's almost a thi- like, I mean, it comes back to the systemic approach that
1: Joanna has mentioned. Yeah. Seeing the farm as, it were, as a system, not just a, a series of crops or products, um, and looking for opportunities of linking different activities on the
4: farm in order to and lift the just, value of the system. And, and don't be constrained to the farm. So think about how that product interacts with the factory, how that interacts with the packaging that it goes in, if I could grade my potatoes, all of my potatoes are small, I could put them into smaller packs for the smallest scrammages. All of these things, it, it's just thinking across the the whole horizon. And we're lucky with it, you know, within PepsiCo, we have people in the supply chain and the factories thinking the same way, saying how can we work together and put all of these pieces of the jigsaw together. And do you work with uh, farmers and those in the, in the
1: industry to Develop new ideas about how to, or are you just out there looking for the people who are kind of claiming the best practices? How do you know, know, who to buy from, who to who to work with?
4: Well, we 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 work as I said, we work direct with farmers, and we've you know we've had many very multi generational relationships, and we know them we know them well, and. We, we do a little bit of everything, but I think the most important thing is, is, is you know, the, this concept of trust. So you know, one of the things that we're working on, which is most important at the moment, is how do we turn our potato peels, once they've been through the anaerobic digester and supported 30 or 40% of all of the, the, the energy requirements of the, of the factory, how do we take those, that anaerobic digester from the potato peels and make it into a proper high-value fertilizer by using more waste products, mixing it, capturing the nitrogen early so it doesn't lose it. And because you're blending the nitrogen to organic um, matter, so you lock it into the soil for longer. And then we work with our farmers to pilot very quickly but really look for the big scale opportunity. So this year we're applying 150 tonnes of this fertiliser that we've, we've produced, which will be, I don't know, 100 hectares. Next year will be 3,000 tonnes. So we scale it up very quickly, which is you know, nearly 40% of our potato crop, and that's what we push to do. Excellent.
1: Thank you. Uh, Michael, back to, back to you, your, your new book, which I, I've started and I'm enjoying very much so far, so far Flourish, which was published earlier this year. Um, uh, You you talk about applying regenerative to the built environment. Um, uh, So as we move beyond agriculture, uh, perhaps talk to us a little bit about about what regenerative in in architecture, what regenerative in the built environment means, and what opportunities it it, it offers.
2: Yeah, sure. So... um painfully, I made a, an 11-year mistake in my career, which was thinking that exemplar projects would be a good way to bring about change. And after 11 years of working on those projects and being frequently told that these ideas are great, but you know, the market's not ready for them, I, I decided that I, have, I had to collaborate with others to try and change the, the system. So I'm, I'm very much an advocate of Danella Meadows' thinking, and, and she argues that the best way to change the system is that the the highest level of leverage points, changing the deep purposes of our organizations and changing the mindsets and worldviews that drive to a large extent how society behaves. And so the the shift that's necessary is is much more cultural than technological. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So the outcome of any particular technology is determined to a large extent by the mindset behind it. So take something like 3D printing, with the current dominated mindset, dominant mindset, that could easily result in us drowning in tons of consumerist crap. If, on the other hand, we had a dominant regenerative mindset, 3D printing could be transformative because it would allow us to use the right raw materials, assemble them in ways that allow near-perfect circularity, and to get much closer to the amazing resource efficiency of biological structures. And then the same applies to our cities. You know, To a large extent, a city is a reflection of how we see ourselves. And so if we're encouraged to think of ourselves as isolated individuals in a competitive zero-sum game, that leads to kind of suburban sprawl with lots of isolated buildings and, and frankly, a miserable quality of life. If, on the other hand, we take a more generous view of humanity as a species with a remarkable capacity for altruism and empathy and cooperation, it would lead to something more like the 15-minute city with healthier food, cleaner air, better transport, cohesive communities, and a public luxury of shared facilities.
1: Yeah, I, was, um, I, I noticed in your book you mentioned early on the example of the freeway that was taken down in the centre of Seoul and turned into a beautiful park, which I've had the chance to walk along, and it totally changes your experience of that. Of that what is it? You know, an enormous city? But it changes the experience, not just as an individual, but as a community, because you meet people walking along, everybody's joyful. It's families. Yeah. It's it's a wonderful experience, and that's you know that's a relatively small example of what you're of what you're talking about. Yeah, Joanna, um, I know at the RSA you're thinking about where can regenerative apply um, uh, beyond it, uh, beyond agriculture, beyond beyond uh, food. So wh- where where are you seeing as the most promising uh, places that we might expand uh, this regenerative thinking? Yeah.
3: Um, I think I, I really agree with what Michael just said around um, really tapping into like our, our strongest leverage points and looking at the root causes of the, some of the issues and crises that we're, we're experiencing today. And I sort of like to draw on Edward um, T. Hall's sort of iceberg model for some of you who would have seen it. Um, the, uh, sort of at the tip of the iceberg, what's above the surface are the kind of events that we're experiencing. There are things like climate change, like um, environmental um, disasters, um, rising cost of living, etc. Underneath, you know, so you sort of start to dive under the surface, then there's the behaviours. Um, our our behaviours as as people, society fundamentally driving a lot of these kind of crises, but these behaviours are driven by the kind of products and services that we're using, the technologies that we're using, Um, and the services and products are driven by the kind of structures and infrastructures that we have created, our economic um, systems, our, our political systems. Um, and then at the root of that, that very, very uh, bottom layer is the, sort of the mindsets, the worldviews. And so going back to the perspectives that I shared earlier and looking at sort of what we can bring at the RSA and our, our heritage and legacy of the last 270 years as a social change organisation, we can have a huge influence on shifting some of these worldviews and shifting some of the, some of these perspectives because we believe that these perspectives are soft skills that can be learned. Um, They're sort of, I guess what you would describe at IDEO is the heart, your head, heart and hand and it's the heart. Um, And so what we can do and what we are currently focusing on with with this tier um, towards this new mission is how do we tap into our 30,000 fellows from around the world and and be able to sort of reinforce the importance of these perspectives but be able to amplify a lot of the work that our fellows are doing in the regenerative space. Uh, That's one example. Another example is our platform we we host 300 uh, public events a year I think we have the highest um, uh, audience YouTube audience of any UK charity um, and um, we we publish a lot of articles, et cetera. So how can we sort of bring some of that content uh, first and foremost to advocate for the need to shift some of these paradigms towards the future? And then through other programmes like the Student Design Awards, um, we have about 10,000 expressions of interest a year, 1,000 applications. So how do we, through some of our reach and some of our networks, we have one of the largest change-making communities around the world, how do we um, start to inspire more people um, to move in that direction and to start to embrace more of these ways of thinking, um, whilst amplifying and elevating the work of those in our community who are already on that trajectory. Yes,
1: yeah, so it sounds to me that the more, we, the more we do to change mindsets, the more likely we, we are to create the tipping points that allow systems to shift. Um, if we don't start with that, then we're unlikely. I think it's back to what you yeah. were talking about, Michael, about working at the very top, looking at the top of the system. Yeah. Um, Just before we we wrap, uh, David, wondering where do you see uh, regenerative thinking going uh, for you and and in PepsiCo in the industry that... PepsiCo is part of what if, if if you if you dream forward, I, where are you excited about the, next, the yes, next places to apply it?
4: Okay, so I I guess, I guess you know we, we, we look we look end to end and lots of people have given really really good examples and I, I, I like this you know the, the top down approach and of designing something brand new from scratch. What really excites me and you know I deal with farms that have been in existence for four hundred years, is actually getting the best out of what we've got today. So if I'm going to, you know, if we think about okay, what's a perfect crop rotation and chickpeas should be in that rotation. Well, okay, how can I use chickpeas today? Now that might be a brand new product, or or can I use it in a different way as a bit of a replacement for potato flakes, which might be a much better crop to replace than, you know, and and then you and and really, how can you? renovate a product where it's already got scale, so you actually get the traction much more quickly. So I get really excited about the, you know, the, the top-driven stuff, but I get super excited about what can we do from bottom-up as well, which can really be, in the short term, I get really excited. Yeah, yeah. So, pardon the pun, but literally innovating at the grassroots. Uh,
1: and, and, and uh, I think that's a, a good place for us to finish I mean we could c- literally continue on this conversation for hours I think it's an incredibly important topic it's an incredibly important topic for, for design and this shift in mindset is one that's going to take some time but I thank you for all of the work that you're all, you're all doing to help us, help us make that change and thank you for joining us this afternoon
0: As we heard from the panel We need to focus on scaling change, looking at entire systems rather than individual cities, crops and products. This builds on what we heard from Kate Raworth, Janine Benyus and Ella MacArthur in the previous episode. So make sure you check it out if you haven't already. We'll be back next time to explore more regenerative solutions from Summit 22. Thanks for listening.